Good to see everyone here this morning. You know, we are in week two looking at our series leading up to the events of the Passion Week. And I think the story today will resonate with a lot of you. How many of you walked into this room today with some burdens, some discouragement, and just carrying a heavy weight? All right, we've got a few honest people in here, because if we're honest, I think we, we all walked in this room this morning carrying something. You know, as I, a while back, I read an article uh, about Ted Turner, and who is the, the media mogul, creator of CNN and TBS, a multi-billionaire, and he became a very outspoken atheist in his 20s, although he's kind of backed off of that now. But he was an extremely religious, committed high schooler. In his youth group, he wanted to be a missionary, just a a very, very outspoken Christian. But when he was 15, his younger sister, Mary Jane, who was 12, contracted lupus, which is a degenerative tissue disease. And she was racked with pain, constantly vomiting. Her screams filled the house. Ted regularly came home and held her hand trying to comfort her, and he prayed for her, and years after year, she experienced this misery, and eventually she passed away. Ted's dad, Ed Turner, remarked at the time, if that's the type of God he is, I want nothing to do with him. And Ted, at that point, lost his faith. He said, I was taught that God was love and God was powerful. And I couldn't understand how someone so innocent should be made or allowed to suffer so. And then in racked with despair, Ted's dad, Ed, on March 5th, 1963, Ed Turner had breakfast with his wife, went upstairs, pulled the trigger, and ended his life. He was 53. And that sealed the deal for Ted Turner. If that's the type of God he is, Ted said, I want nothing to do with him. You know, we have three options in life. When you feel like God disappoints you, you can lose your faith. You conclude like Ted Turner that he's not really there if he never, he's never been there. And if he was there, you want nothing to do with him. That's really your first option. Your next option is isolate that question from your faith. Gloss over it and refuse to think about it, which is what some people do. Many people have simply shut off parts of their heart and their mind to the Christian faith and just refuse to think about it because they are afraid their faith cannot stand up to the question, and they don't want to lose their faith. That would be too painful. So they just don't think deeply about these types of issues or questions. The result, however, is a superficial faith that doesn't consume your whole being because you have a God you cannot love with your whole heart. The third thing we can do is press deeper in your faith. Let these questions drive you deeper into God. And I'll tell you that there's times in my life when I ask the hardest questions, that's times when I'm struggling, 
I've doubted God, that that is when my faith, it grew the most and it became the sweetest to me. The depths of God's love can often be known best in the depths of despair. You can't know how deep the love of God is until you cry out to him from the depths of despair and you say, my pain is deep, but yet you see that God's love is deeper still. So here's the question for today that I hope we can answer throughout our time together. What do you do when God disappoints you? Or better yet, maybe we should say when you think God disappoints you. What do you do? For some of you, the question may not be this extreme. You may not be about ready to lose your faith, but you are frustrated at God because your life is not going according to your plan, the way that you wanted it to go. Maybe it's all of your friends are getting married right now, but you cannot find a mate. Maybe your friends are getting jobs or promotions, but it's not working out for you, and you're like, God, why is it not coming through for me? Why can I not find a fulfilling career? Or maybe it's you're trying to have kids and you cannot, or you're approaching retirement, and financially it's not looking good for you. Or your kids didn't turn out the way you thought. You're like, God, by this time I was supposed to be enjoying grandkids, and if you're honest, you're just angry about it. Or maybe it's You're now in your 40s, and your husband, your wife just walked out on you. A whole range of things where you think, man, this is just not the way that I saw my life playing out. We're going to look at a story today from John chapter 11. With two sisters who are asking this same question. We'll pick up today in John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now what were they hoping for? They had seen Jesus heal. They knew that he had the power to heal they know that he can do it for Lazarus surely if Jesus healed complete strangers he would do it for one that Jesus loves let's keep reading verse 4 but when Jesus heard it he said this illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So they heard that Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This is crazy. He stayed longer knowing that Lazarus was was ill. This intentional two-day delay, as we read ahead here in just a few moments, we'll see that it cost Lazarus his life. While Jesus waited, Lazarus died. I think in light of that word, so, it's very, very curious. Verse 7, that after he said, 
After this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Down to verse 12. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. Jesus had already told them that Lazarus had died. But they thought he meant taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. It's almost like he's saying, come on, you fools. I already told you that he's dead. He's not just sleeping. He's dead. Oh, I'm not, not going to take a two days walk to go wake Na- Lazarus up from a nap. He's dead. It's like the disciples in their thick skulls sometimes didn't get what Jesus was saying. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Down to verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So we see here with Martha. She comes pleading, Jesus, had you been here, my brother would have not died. Jesus gives her a very straightforward theological response. Let's keep going. Verse 28. When he had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, Look at how his response is different with the second sister. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I really want to focus here for the rest of our message on how Jesus responded differently to Mary versus Martha. Because I think the teaching in this story and the answer to our question really hinges on the two reactions Jesus gave these two sisters. You see, Mary and Martha, if you look in Scripture, they had the same exact 
response to Jesus, verbatim. They said, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. They said the same thing to him. But Jesus gave them two completely different responses. When you are disappointed with Jesus, you need both of these responses. To Martha, he gives a theological answer. He says, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The one who lives and believes in me will never truly die. Let me stop here and build for you very briefly a theological case for suffering. Because suffering is something that if you have not experienced in this world, you will. You will. You see, suffering is the result of the curse of death on our sin. God created this world, you see, with no suffering. Perfect. It was our sin, our rebellion, a rebellion we have all voluntarily participated in, that brought God's curse upon this world. Most of the objections raised against God about suffering are built on the assumption that we as a human race, that we deserve good things, we're owed good things, and God is unjust for not giving those good things to us. But the Bible takes an an entirely opposite tact. We don't deserve good things. As a race, you see, because of our sin, we rebelled against God, a rebellion that we have all voluntarily participated in every day of our lives, and the just result of that is death. The fact that there is still any good in the world, such as the sun rising up (laughs) this morning, is an act of God's grace is God's grace. And the fact that God has given us space to repent and to teach our children how to live a life of repentance is an act of unspeakable grace on the part of a holy God. The Bible doesn't wrestle with the problem of evil as much as it marvels in God's amazing grace. As sinners, to put God on trial for our suffering as if somehow he was unjust is like a guy who kills his mom and dad and throws himself on the mercy of the court because he's an orphan. Think about it in those terms. So the truth is, number one, all suffering in the world is the result of the curse of death for our sin. Now, to clarify, I'm not saying that you look at a particular instance of suffering and tie it to a particular sin. The Bible never tells us to think that way. That is, you know, happened because of that. We like to do that. Well, this happened to that person because they did this. Now, the Bible never has us look at that way. You know, sometimes people like to say, well, he got cancer because he wasn't a good husband. Now, that's, that's not the right way of looking at it. Or that car accident happened to her because, you know, she was just a terrible person. No, that's not the way the Bible tells us to look at that. That's, that's, that's not how the Bible presents suffering. It's more of a general thing. We live in a world of suffering because we, as a race of people, have rebelled against God. All the suffering in the world is a result of the curse of death for our sin. Truth number two. God, in his love and mercy, has reversed the curse 
by suffering it in our place. The only truly innocent sufferer ever in the history was, of this world was Jesus. He was the only person to ever live free from the curse of sin, but he voluntarily died anyway. And when he did, he overthrew the curse of death and started the process of healing. This healing begins when it cancels our sin debt and reconciles us to God. It starts to affect our relationships. It will one day soon include our bodies when they are resurrected, perfect, and without pain and will eventually extend to our world as God establishes resurrection peace again to this earth. That is what we are yearning for. That is what this earth is crying out for. The peace that Jesus alone will establish. Truth number three. God now uses our suffering redemptively for his glory, and for our good. And this is a tough one for us. God uses our suffering redemptively for his glory and for our good. When we look at his glory, there are some things that God can demonstrate about himself to the world through our pain better than he can any other way. And for our good, there are some things God can teach us about himself through our pain better than he can any other way that we'll see eventually is for our good. Now, some people balk at that last point and say, all pain for God's glory and our good? What about, Pastor Robert, what about the Holocaust? What about September 11th? How can you say the Holocaust was in any way good for the Jew? But you're forgetting truth number one. That suffering is the just result of the curse of death for our sin. Think of it this way. Think of a hundred people standing somewhere, both good and bad people. The sun comes up and all 100 of those good and bad people are all warmed. God doesn't individually shine the sun on a few people and leave the others out. The curse of death rises up over them the same thing happens it indiscriminately affects all of them but we can't say that it's unfair because what is fair is that we are under the curse of sin and that fairness if god were truly fair we all deserve death and hell for the believer however god has taken the sting out of death and suffering and promised to now use our suffering for our good, and for his glory. So in every seemingly random bad thing, he is working redemptively for his purpose. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them that love God, that they might be reformed into the image of Jesus. And then Ephesians 1, 11, and that God works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we would resound to the praise of his God glory. Let me show you how these truths play out at the end of our story today, because if you're going to see this pattern of suffering, let's go back to John chapter 11, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. 
Jesus said, Take away the stone, Martha. The sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? There it is, for God's glory. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Let's stop here. This might be a textual thing that you may miss. There is a phrase here that's been used a couple of times which really just doesn't translate well into English. And that's this phrase, deeply moved. We see it in verse 33 and then again in verse 38. And scholars say this phrase, deeply moved, is a terribly deficient English translation. English doesn't have a great word for it in the Greek, but it really should be translated snort with anger is the way it should be translated. One scholar says the word literally has the connotation of an animal snorting with anger as they're getting ready to charge. I like to think about the bull and the matador as that bull is snorting with anger, getting ready to charge that, that matador. John Calvin, the great theologian, says this word indicates not sympathy so much as Jesus preparing to enter a ring, like a wrestler preparing for the contest. He groans because the violent tyranny of death, which he had to overcome, now stands before his eyes. Jesus shouts at death with a loud voice, snorting, yelling. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is entering the ring with mankind's greatest enemy, death. Now, the other thing that is interesting that John points out in verse 47, that this event, the raising of Lazarus, would trigger the events, would kind of kickstart the events that we would see in the Passion Week leading toward Jesus' death. This fight, with death that started in chapter 11 of John with Jesus yelling and snorting at death would end eight chapters later with the crucifixion, with Jesus conquering death, absorbing the curse of death we deserved in our place and snapping the neck of death. The only way Jesus could interrupt the funeral of Lazarus really is to start his own. Jesus here in, in chapter 11 climbs into the ring with death and wrestles with it. So Lazarus and everyone Jesus loves who would call upon his name, that includes you and I, could live. You know, as a man, I love this because, you know, sometimes you see Jesus presented in these soft feminine terms this is a man shouting at the greatest enemy ever to face those that he loved and destroying it even when it took his life 
Here we have this man taking on the greatest enemy in the history of this world, and that is death. Verse 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, if you remember, Martha had warned Jesus not to open the stone. Why? Because he'd been in the grave for four days and he was going to stink. But Jesus said, do it because when they did, what they would counter would not be the stench of death, but what? The glory of God. They would experience the glory of God. You've got to notice the contrast here. She was expecting the stench of decomposition, but he knew what they would find would be the glory of God. The glory of recomposition. Now follow me here. I think you see in this picture of how God, in all of our pain, works for good. The curse of death and suffering touches us, and we expect to find in our circumstances the decay of decomposition. But God has been working behind the scenes so that what you find is not the decay of decomposition, but what you find is the glory of God through recomposition. Sometimes you see that on earth. You go through a period in life where things are so difficult, and you wonder where God is. You think, man, life is so hard. And then you look back a few years later, God rolls away the stone, and you see what he's done. And you can look back with a clear eyes and say, God, my faith was struggling. I was questioning you, but now I can see clearly you were working for my good and for your glory. There are going to be times, other times in life, where he doesn't roll away the stone down here on earth. You'll never figure out exactly what he was doing. But you go into eternity, and there you'll see that was the bigger picture. That is what he was doing. Rest assured, passages like this one assure us that he will roll the stone back on suffering and death. And when he does, you will be overwhelmed by the glory of God. For the believer, Paul calls our suffering a light and momentary affliction. He references as birth pangs. You hear, you know, if you're walking to the hospital and you hear people crying out in a room in a hospital, what emotion does it cause in you? Well, if the person is in the final throes of dying, it is very depressing. But if it's a woman giving labor, it's a different type of emotion, isn't it? You feel sympathy for the woman, but even in the pain, even in that temporary pain, 
you know that that pain will soon be swallowed up by the glory of a child of a new life coming from that pain. Pain and suffering for believers is like birth pangs, not like the despairing cries of someone dying. There is a difference, and that is the glory of knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior. Suffering in this life is real, but in the next life it's forever. In the light of forever, the pain of this moment will disappear. Before we end this, let's go back and pick up Jesus' reaction to Mary. We spent most of our time this morning looking at Martha because it's important, but I want you to see the reaction that he gives to Mary as well. Verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then the shortest verse in all of the Bible, two words, Jesus wept. I've always thought these tears were a little odd. Did he not know, (laughs) of course he knew, that 10 minutes later, he would raise Lazarus up from the grave and they would be reunited? Yes. He knew from the first time that he caught word that Lazarus was ill. He knew what he was going to do. Well, then why didn't he just say, Mary, don't cry. I'll fix it. I'll take care of it. Why weep Mary with Mary if in 10 minutes the issue was going to be resolved? To give you Here's the answer to this. To give you a picture of how Jesus goes through suffering with you. You see, even when Jesus knows that our pain is temporary, he knows what it feels like for you, and he weeps with you. He is with you. That's how I know a friend loves me. They weep when I weep. Ten minutes is not that much different to Jesus than 10,000 years. He can already see the beautiful end to your story to see all the suffering that is swallowed up in the glorious resurrection of what will be revealed. But when you've lost someone, as much as you tell yourself you'll see them again in eternity, it's still painful now. When you are lonely, and you hurt, it is painful now. Sometimes what you need is not the theological response that he gave Martha. You need the response of a Savior who weeps with you and your suffering. That old hymn, What a friend we have in Jesus. He took our sin and our sorrow, and he made us his very own. He bore our burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. You see, we need to understand the theological answer. We do, as a people. But sometimes you need to know that he is there, that he is present that he is fully committed, and that he is in control. For those of you that are disappointed, 
What if Jesus appeared to you and told you what you're going through right now? This is for God's glory. And he assured you that he loved you. And you saw him weep in your pain and that he was fully in in control. Could you endure if you received this special type of revelation that Jesus appeared? Yeah, you probably could. It'd make it feel a lot better to know to have that assurance that if you knew all was working for the glory of God and that he was fully in control and he completely loved you, yes, that would definitely help. But we have this response, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. To which Jesus would respond, I am here. I am always here. But you might be in day two of your weeping like Mary and Martha and feel like Jesus hasn't shown up. Or maybe Lazarus has been dead for four days and still no sign of Jesus yet. Hang on. Hang on. Because he's coming. And this delay is for his glory and your good. Bethel as a church, we worship, we believe at the feet of the one who has power over death. When we sang these songs this morning with Pastor Jay leading us, have that confidence. When we sing, Lord, I need you. We are singing to a Lord who conquered death. Do you realize the power that this shows? He can bring anyone out with the power of his voice. The famous theologian D.A. Carson says that had Jesus not specified Lazarus, remember we read that, he said, Lazarus, come out, that every tomb in Jerusalem would have given up the dead. That is the power of his voice. Do you realize the power of the one who walks beside you, who walks with you, and who is at work inside of you? If he can do this, what could he not do? What is he not worthy of? What kind of worship reaction should that solicit? in our lives are you going to resist him he is the only one who can overcome your greatest problem i think we would all agree that today the death rate in this country and in this world is still sitting at 100 percent everyone faces death and he is our only hope so if you're disappointed today no I leave here knowing that in each and every specific circumstance of every person in this room, he is working for your good and for his glory. Let's pray.